Christianity is considered a missionary religion. That is, it sends people out to the far reaches of the earth offering new life in Christ to everybody. But it's also a missional religion. And you say, well, what's the difference? Missionary, missional. Uh, A missionary is simply somebody who goes far away. And a missional Christian is someone who realizes far away is right here, (laughs) right now. Um, They wake up one morning in their comfortable house in the suburbs and realize, yeah, I I guess I am in the middle of a mission field. You know, I'm surrounded by wonderful, nice, friendly uh, people who are very empty inside. Um, They lack community. They lack meaning and purpose in life. And the one secret that I know (laughs) is that that can only be found in Jesus You know, it's not an easy mission field, but one of the ways the book of Acts is so encouraging to us is it shows how early Christianity was born in a culture every bit as hostile to its claims as ours is. You know, early Christianity in the book of Acts, it grows very fast, it grows beautiful, but it grows out of hard soil. And what we see in the book of Acts is simply the fact that Christianity is its most potent when its people realize that way out there is now right here. And maybe the best way that I can describe that to you further is by simply reading the story that is found here, Acts 8, 26 through, I think it's 37. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. That is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge, who uh, he was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Well, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns he came to in Caesarea. Okay, well, there are four people that our text shows us. I want to show them to you. First, we discover there is a runner. Second, a seeker, third, a sufferer, and fourth, a little baby. So who is this runner? Well, Philip is a character who has been introduced earlier in the story of Acts. He's likely 
a middle-class Jewish man, a convert to Christianity, a man of fairly incredible character because he was selected among all of the early church as one of, what was it, seven or so, uh, to serve the poor and the, um, the widow and the orphan in the city of Jerusalem. An angel comes to Philip and gives him a strange message. You know, go to this road that's in the middle of the nowhere, that is in the middle of the desert. Um, go probably during the hottest part of the day. And he tells him no more. Once he's there, the Holy Spirit takes up the cause and he delivers yet another message. Go join up with the chariot. And it says, I didn't, I, I'm sure you caught it, and, and Philip ran to him. Now, there's a good reason why he needed to run to the chariot. Have you guessed what that reason is? The chariot was moving. <laughs> so I want you to picture the scene. We've got an Ethiopian eunuch sitting in his chariot, heading down a desert road. He has a scroll that's unrolled in his lap, which he is intently reading aloud. And he sees some movement out of the corner of his eye over to his right-hand side. And, and behold, a Jewish guy. What? A Jewish guy's running beside my chariot right now. I mean, really, God has a good sense of humor, right? What are you doing here? And we can imagine Philip. I heard you reading something. Do you understand what you're reading? Now, how would your everyday, ordinary Ethiopian eunuch respond to a question like that? He probably would be thinking to himself, why am I talking to this guy? <laughs> Why am I talking to a guy running beside my chariot right now? I mean, it's like, scram, beat it. Driver, speed up. Um, I'm sure he had something like that going through his mind because there would be no reason for him to talk to a guy like this. I mean, it's a totally, it's a totally comedic scene. We're told about this eunuch several things. First off, he is uh, a man of great uh, wealth and status. He is the chief financial officer of a nation. He's the CFO, a cabinet official in the Queen's government. Very wealthy, very powerful, we assume. Super smart, like full of all kinds of gifts and talents and prowess. He's a black man. He's from Ethiopia. And Philip, on the other hand, is his total opposite, total opposite in terms of ethnicity and geography and station in life. Maybe one of the biggest opposites that the Bible would have noticed is this. Philip was circumcised and an Ethiopian eunuch would have been castrated. You know, ah, that's about as big of a difference as uh, they uh, come, which makes the encounter so much, so remarkable. (laughs) The natural thing for the eunuch to say is, I don't have conversations with guys like you. And the natural thing for the Philip to say is, I don't run after chariots like yours. But what does the eunuch actually say? He says, it's a very humble response that he gives. He says, I I don't understand what I'm reading. Is there anybody who can help? So why does this eunuch respond that way? He responds that way for the same reason that Philip responds his way, running alongside a chariot. It's simply because the Holy Spirit was at work on both of these guys. Well, there are at least two things we can learn from this. First, the direction of the Spirit. The direction of the Spirit is to leap over racial and cultural and station in life boundaries. That is always the movement of the Spirit. 
that was always the, at the heart of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was on earth, he was, he was regularly telling his disciples, hey guys, my message, this message is to go to all peoples, all ethnic groups, all races, all cultures. My message isn't just for people like you, it is for everybody. And whenever, I would say this, whenever Christians are responding to Jesus the way they ought to be, you will find them running and leaping over all of the barriers, the racial barriers, the cultural barriers, the economic barriers that separate us. And furthermore, when people are responding to the Spirit, the Spirit, when he, he is crushing any residue of racial superiority, which is present in our hearts. And that can take you know, any old kind of form. It could be white superiority. It could be black superiority. It could be uh, Asian superiority. Um, anything that causes us to look down at another race and think that we're better than them. I mean, a huge theme of the book of Acts is how the Spirit overcomes those forms of prejudices. So the first thing we learn is how Jesus urges us to run and leap. Secondly, the second thing comes from church history. We learn in church history that this turns out to be the birthplace of African Christianity. One of the early church fathers, a man by the name of Irenaeus, he uh, said that this Ethiopian eunuch returned to his native land, and there he became a missionary to his own people. So he moved back into his old house, and he effectively became missional. He was missional. And the church in Africa, um, it has been exploding ever since. I don't know if you've ever uh, been confronted with these statistics before. In 1900, there were 9 million Christians in Africa. 1900. 100 years later, 2000, there were 380 million Christians. And they project by the year 2025, there will be 633 million. Like the African church, it is lit. It is on fire. It is amazing. Um, and the cool, what's, what I find especially enthralling about it is it's not, they're not doing like white American Christianity in Africa. That's not the African church. The African church is African Christianity. It's its own thing. It's its own unique thing. Um, just like if you go to China today where the faith is just exploding, it's not American Christianity done in China. It is Chinese Christianity. And frankly, it's a whole lot better than ours. What people don't, I'm sorry, what people outside of our faith don't understand about Christianity is that our faith, of all the religions of the world, it's our faith which exhibits the greatest amount of cultural diversity. Contrary to popular opinion, true Christianity, when it goes to a native culture, it doesn't tell you, like, here's what you must eat, and here's how you must dress, and here's the music you have to listen to. The message of true Christianity is not, in order to become a Christian, you must leave behind, completely leave behind all your, your, your native culture. No. What Christianity does when it's in its best form is it like, draws from the the riches of that native culture, and it infuses it with God's story in order to create a brand new, like wonderful, transforming culture. And that's what we see in Chinese Christianity, in African Christianity, in South American Christianity. We find a church there that is so vitalized that, and it is, is booming. And one of the things that uh, a lot of people have this misnomer about... Um, you know what is the least, like one of the least diverse religions in the world? Um, it, one of the least diverse religions in the world is none other than Western secularism. 
the dominant worldview of our day. When you study, really study secularism, you realize it is a religion and it is primarily held by rich, educated, white, you know, Western Europeans and Americans. It is primarily held by uh, the college professors on our campuses and the uh, editorial boards of the New York Times and the columnists at the Washington Post. And, and we go on and on. Like all the people who have all of the cultural influence uh, Hollywood, you know, all those guys who have in the, in the cultural power centers in our country, um, they are operating out of a, net, uh, a secular mindset. And even though they always talk about inclusivity, if you look, you find they are not a very diverse group. They're not. Um, poor people in America are not Western secularists, by and large. And black people aren't Western secularists, by and large. And Asian people aren't. It's this narrow cadre of primarily white-educated uh, you know, people. You know, I think that it would do, um, it would do all saints, like it would honestly just do the whole world, the whole city of Meridian such good if we could transport the city, and especially our church, over to Africa for a week and let us just sit in and watch the African church or watch the Filipino church or watch the Chinese church. What we what you would see is such a vitalized missional people who look a whole lot like Philip the runner, <laughs> um, so much more so than we do. So that's the first guy we encounter, the runner. Secondly, the second person we see in this passage is a seeker. And where is he to be found? Well, he comes from, it says, Ethiopia, which we think of modern Ethiopia. It was probably, their Ethiopia was probably southern Egypt. So this week I got onto Google Maps. I picked a random city in southern Egypt just to see like how long would it take you to go from the upper Nile, uh, Nile River area all the way up through like Cairo and um, all the way up into the city of Jerusalem. It's about a thousand miles, like a thousand miles of desert. It would be kind of like you and me um, going on a dirt road from Boise to Tucson in the summer in a chariot 2,000 years ago. It like, sounds like a blast. I can't wait. Said so no one ever, right? What could possibly possess a man to make a journey like that? I can only imagine the conversation he had with his boss when he was breaking the news to her, like, <laughs> uh, your royal highness, Queen Candace, I was hoping to get a little bit of time off of work. Well, how much time do you need? Uh, months? Several months? Well, that's an awful long time for me to be without my chief financial officer. What are you doing? Um, well, I always wanted to travel to the city of Jerusalem to worship at the Jewish temple. And when he, told, when he told his friends that, like, I'm going to worship at the Jewish temple, they had to look at him like he had a third eye coming out of, the, out of his forehead. Like, what? We have all kinds of temples around here. There's a thousand temples in Ethiopia. We've got a thousand different gods in Ethiopia. Why in the world do you need to go to the Jewish temple? And don't you have any idea how dangerous that would be? I mean, a thousand-mile journey in the ancient world was, I mean, you may not come back from that. And even if you did come back from it, you know, going there and back, 2,000 miles round trip, even if you did, you'd be gone for such a long time, you may lose your position. Like You may no longer be the CFO when you return. And so why would he do something like that? Why would, what would possess a man to do something like that? And the answer is obvious, isn't it? 
he must have been searching for something that he couldn't find where he was at. The history of the ancient Near East tells us the common way for a man to become a eunuch in royal service, he would be formerly a slave. Uh, there would have been somebody who saw something special in him who, you know, this guy is, he's a real talent. He's a real up-and-comer. I think he should be selected. You know, out of all of the slaves in, in your, among your citizens, you, know, you pick a few of them and you bring them into royal service. But, and here's the, here's the catch, in order to protect the queens and the princesses and all of the females of the royal court, they did what to them? They castrated them. Like full, fully so. And I think you would agree, wouldn't you, that that is a terrible price to pay for power. It's a terrible price to pay. For a eunuch to make it to the highest echelons of power and wealth and status, they had to pay uh, an enormous price. It means that they would never have a family. They would never have any children. You would never be able to pass your family name on to the next generation. Your family name might end with you. And you kind of hear this among a lot of people who make it to the top and win Super Bowls and become CEOs or they become you know, high-powered politicians. Later in life when they're reflecting on it, you hear this all the time. They say, the top is really lonely. And you get all this power and success and wealth. You finally make it there only to find like it's barren as, as the top of Mount Everest. It's lonely and how much more so for a eunuch who can have no family? Now, this man is empty inside. Uh, we don't know how he became attracted to Judaism or even why he wanted to travel to the city of Jerusalem. We, we assume, hey, I mean, the, the crowning jewel of Judaism was the temple. And presumably he wanted to go on this thousand-mile, months-long journey in order to try and enter the temple and meet Yahweh in his temple like all of the Psalms speak about and this is a cruel irony. Does anybody know what happened when he got there? After all of those hot, sweaty, horrible, chariot-sore days, miles and miles of desert nothingness, mixed with all of the anticipations of what will, what will I find? Kind of what is the pot at the end of the rainbow? When he walks up to the front door of the temple, do you have any idea what he found there? He found a rule that said eunuchs can't enter. No eunuchs are allowed in. There were very strict rules in Judaism regulating who could and could not enter the temple precincts. And one of those rules is found in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 3. No castrated man is allowed to enter into the temple to worship Yahweh. Imagine the um, profound disillusionment he feels on the outside. What was the point of this long journey. Why did I make such a sacrifice? <laughs> what gives? <laughs> like, has this been one long, wild, spiritual goose chase? It certainly had to have felt that way to him. Again, we're speculating. We don't know how long he spent in Jerusalem before returning back to Ethiopia or even what he did during that time. But here's where it gets really interesting. I believe that he acquired something in the city of some, he acquired something of immense value while he was in Jerusalem. And this something was not something that he had before he had gotten there. Because very likely, something of this value, something this priceless, he would not have brought this on the trip. 
for fear of the extreme danger of it being lost or stolen. What happened to him in the city? He acquired an Isaiah scroll. He acquired an Isaiah scroll. Like individual Jews, they don't have their own copy of the Bible. I mean, to be in possession of a scroll from the book of Isaiah, uh, you would have had to pay a fortune and you would have had to been extremely lucky. And he had a fortune to spend. No, I think he got an Isaiah scroll in Jerusalem. And here, here's where the picture comes back together. He is reading from that scroll after his disillusioned um, uh, meant his end, uh, has happened in Jerusalem. He's reading it at the very moment when his eyes fall upon Isaiah chapter 53, verses 6 and 7. He reads, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, So he opens not his mouth. He reads of a human sufferer. He reads of our third person. Who is this sufferer that Isaiah is talking about? Who is this man who is deprived of justice? It says this man experienced deep humiliation. His his life was taken away from the earth. The eunuch looks down at the running guy and he asks, Will you tell me what this means? He invites Philip up into the chariot, and Philip gives him this answer. It's about Jesus. All of the Bible is all about Jesus. It's not postmodernist literary theory that you're taught in your freshman classes or your college classes. Like the text means whatever you want it to mean. It means you know, it's not like interpretation is left up entirely to the reader, it's whatever you feel. The text is just whatever you feel. Um, No, no, all the Bible is about Jesus. Philip gets invited up into the chariot and he says, God had Isaiah write a prophecy about an innocent victim. And maybe the eunuch asked him, well, if he's innocent, then why is he dying? It's told to us in the rest of the verses of Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. It is the greatest passage in all the Bible about the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And today the cross is the most iconic religious symbol in the world, right? It is revered by Christians as the instrument of human salvation, as the place where Jesus died to take away the sins of the world. And that's why crosses are ubiquitous. Crosses, they decorate hills and homes and and biceps, and necklaces. Crosses are everywhere. But do you know where, where, what I found? You know the hardest place for a cross to decorate? What I found, it's my own heart. <laughs> the hardest place for the cross to decorate is our own hearts. I'm always struggling to believe the message of the cross. That... That it's all what Jesus has done for me, like not what I do for him. And if you're a Christian, you always struggle to believe the message of the cross. The, 
The message of the gospel is not live a good life and try to be like Jesus. It's Jesus has already done everything you need on that cross. So a few chapters later in the book of Acts, we come up to this crisis point, early crisis point in Christianity, where there is a moment, there's a huge debate in the church on uh, what, what really is the good news. And there's a Jewish group in the church who kind of rises up and they say, they say, here's the good news of Christianity. Believe that Jesus was crucified. He was the crucified Messiah. And be circumcised. And then God will accept you and God will be pleased with you and you'll be a true Christian. It was faith and circumcision. That's what they were saying. But if that was the message given to a eunuch, that would be very bad news. That wouldn't be good news. That would be terrible news. Because that was physically impossible. Now the message that Philip preached to him was just look to the cross. Do you see what Jesus did on the cross? Do you see the Lamb of God on the cross? Do you realize he did that for you? Do you believe it? Does it do you believe it in such a way that it melts your heart? Can you feel your heart melting underneath that message? Circumcision in the Bible is a very big deal. I mean, you couldn't be a Jew without it. And yet, God in the pro- among the prophets, he, he was, through Moses, through Joel, uh, through um, Jeremiah and others, he was always promising a day when people who were in a relationship with him, um, the emphasis was no longer so much about physical circumcision. It was about the circumcision of the heart. Which means, like, he gives you a new heart. You, a new heart. And, and that's what I think Philip preached to him. Is, yeah, circumcision, it, it matters. But it matters so long as your heart is circumcised. Because that's what, that's what it's all about. If you believe the message of the gospel, what Jesus did on the cross for you, it melts your heart. It circumcises your heart. It is good news. And then it got me to thinking, you know, there may be somebody out there, uh, you know, maybe you're watching online, maybe you're here this morning, and, and you're thinking, you've been thinking all along, oh, not, please, not another evangelism sermon. I hate evangelism sermons. I hate it. I, I hate, I hate missional sermons. I'm not even convinced that we should be missional people or we should be talking about that on Sundays. And I wonder if the reason you hate it so much is because what you hear me saying this, you hear me think, saying, this is the good news. Believe in Jesus and be missional. Then God will be pleased with you. If that was the good news, it wouldn't be good news to me. It wouldn't be good news to you. I mean, very, very, very few American Christians live missional lives. So let's be honest. We don't. We, we do not go out into every day believing that we are in the middle of a mission field. We do not do churches in a way for the most part anymore, as though we are in the middle of a, of a missional field. Very few, and so if the message was believe in Jesus and be missional, um, I would hate that message too. I would. Because I'm not very missional. <laughs> uh, I know I'm not. You know, I started laughing this week when it, I felt like the Holy Spirit was speaking to me. And uh, it was like, if you ever find me out on a deserted desert road in the middle of nowhere, you can, be, you can rest assured why I'm there. I'm not there to find a person. I'm there to get away from people. <laughs> you know, if you find me up in, in some, on some 
uh, climb in the middle of the mountains, it's not for me to find a person there. It's to get away from, from all the people. You know, I, one of the great um, disappointments in my life is that I haven't lived a very missional life, nor have I told my children that that is really one of the secrets to living a true and wonderful, wonderful life. But I understand how this happens to all of us. I mean, life is very hard, and over time, like one of the results of living in this sad world is just over time, we begin to, to curve in on ourselves. We, we turn inward. We turn inward um, away from people and to ourselves. You might be a mom, and you're like, I mean, missional, come on. I can barely get myself out of bed in the morning. I can barely get myself through a single day. My, I mean, my home is so chaotic. My kids are so needy. My marriage is so struggling, missional. Like, yeah, right. For self-preservation's sake, I got to curve in on myself. Um, we carry so many pains that do not get healed inside of us. So many you know, residual injuries that we have suffered at the hands of other people, right? And so it's for that reason that I... I don't want to really give myself to you because I don't ever want to be hurt like that again. I'll give a little piece of myself to you, but I won't give you much more than that because I, I swore I would, never be, I would never allow myself to be hurt that way again. We curve in. And so when people hear a Christian pastor get up on Sunday morning from the pulpit and speak this uh, missional sermon, it is probably threatening to them because it sounds like this. For God to be pleased with me, for God to be pleased with me, I have got to do just one more thing that I am incapable of doing. I can't do it. You're right. <laughs> At least that part of the sermon, or the sentence, you're right. You, you are, you're probably incapable. Um, but the message is not believe in Jesus and be circumcised. The message is believe in Jesus and he will circumcise you. And I think that the key is the more our hearts are melted by the message of the gospel, uh, by the love of God to a person like you. I mean, the message of the cross is that Jesus suffered, you know, all of the, the torments that he did on the cross so that the Father could love you right now in such a way that he loves the actual you. He loves the you that you are right now. <laughs> he loves the non-missional you. And he loves the you that you don't like about yourself. And he loves the you that says, I should be doing better. I should be doing more. I'm such a disappointment. He loves the disappointed in you, you. He loves the curved in on yourself, you. And he loves you that way because of everything that happened to his son on the cross. Amen? And it's because of the cross that the Father could not love you any more, not an ounce more, than he loves you right now. Because the Lamb of God was slain for the real you, the you-you. And when the Holy Spirit showers the love of God into your heart, do you know what happens? It's like a tulip in the spring. It just starts to open up. It gradually opens up. It opens up to other people. It opens up to God himself. It opens up to the world. And I'll tell you uh, uh, really briefly how this has happened to me in the past. You know, uh, I kind of go in and out. 
I curve in on myself and I come out and I curve in on myself. Got this accordion thing working on me. But uh, one of the ways that I I found God leading me out is it was actually a statement I heard in a sermon. A guy said this. He said he said when you're in a coma, when the patient is in a coma and they move their little finger, that's a big deal. And I was like, oh, I bet the Holy Spirit could at least move my little finger. <laughs> I am in a coma. I bet he could move my little finger. And so what I started doing, keeping a journal, and you're going to probably think this is silly, but I uh, keep in a journal every single time I saw the Spirit do just the most minute thing to move me outward to another person. And that could mean, that can mean me sharing a story about my life that I would just otherwise keep silent. That could be me I'm going back to the house to pick up a $5 bill because I don't have any money in my pocket to then go tip the waitress for the takeout food that I'm picking up. And I'm a cheapskate. I don't usually tip for takeout food. Uh, But I just recorded all of these little times. And I said to myself, you know what? It's okay. (laughs) It's okay. Like, it's okay if only all you're able to do is move your little finger because that means the Holy Spirit's at work on you. And that's good news. <laughs> Which leads us to our fourth and final person in this story. We, we've seen a runner so far. We've seen a seeker, a searcher. We've seen a sufferer. And last, we see a baby. The Christian sacrament of baptism means that an old way of life is over. It's done and a new way of life begins. They're driving along this desert road, and he's like, hey, there's water right there. Um, I believe in Jesus. Why shouldn't I be baptized? So they go down into the water, and uh, he's baptized. And baptism, I was, it got me thinking, what, was, what did baptism mean for this eunuch? Baptism for the eunuch happens when he realizes that the journey, it wasn't a wild spiritual goose chase. It was not a wild spiritual goose chase. It was the journey was Jesus chasing after me. The journey was Jesus after me. It was Jesus who made him aware of the emptiness of wealth and power and status. It was Jesus who put inside him this desire to go on a long and crazy journey. It was Jesus who closed the temple doors. And it was Jesus who put a Bible into his hand. Amen? And most profoundly, this is, this is the most profound part. The guy who is running beside his chariot is not Philip. It is, it's Jesus. That's Jesus running after him. And that's what Jesus does. Like he runs through you after people that are so different than you. He runs through you. That was Jesus running And baptism happens when um, a man finds Jesus and realizes that here's what I've been looking for all along. I'm finally ready to start a new life. I'm ready to be born again. And maybe that describes you, possibly. Um, I'm going to put a prayer. I'm going to lead us in a prayer that is at the end of the sermon and invite you if you are ready to kind of take that step of faith to pray it along with me. But I'm going to finish with these words. They are words taken from Isaiah chapter 56. So three chapters later from Isaiah 53. After the baptism, Philip disappears. He's off to preach somewhere else. 
But the eunuch gets back in his chariot, and I was thinking, what would he naturally do? I mean, the most natural thing he would do was to continue to read in the scroll, isn't it? And he'd you know, roll it down a little further. He would come to Isaiah 56. And I want you to just imagine how it felt for him to hear these words right after he is baptized. I mean, in baptism, it's a picture of our being born again, of new life. And in baptism, we're baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're given a new name. And in baptism, we're brought into the community of faith. So we're given a new family. We're pictured born again like a baby. We're given a new name. We are brought into a new community, a new family. Imagine how he felt when he read these words in Isaiah 56. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. That is a a dry tree because he can't have family. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs in my house and within my walls, I will give a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall never be cut off. For thus says the Lord to, um, to all eunuchs, to, to all seekers, you're not a dry tree any longer. If you found Christ, uh, you're a newborn babe. You're a new man. You finally found what you're looking for. Amen. Let's pray. As I said, if you um, are, are ready to take the plunge of faith and believe in Jesus, then you can pray something along these lines. Lord Jesus Christ, um, I've come to see that my long and wandering journey was actually uh, a journey for you. And I can look at a lot of things in my life where um, I was rebelling against you, um, but even in my rebellion, it was because I, I truly wanted you. And maybe um, you might even pray, Lord, in this sermon, I realize how you have been searching after me. <laughs> you've, put, you've put a lot of markers in my life, and you've brought me to the place where I see that uh, you were chasing me all along. I recognize that I am more sinful than I, than I could ever begin to describe. But in you, because of your death on the cross, I am more loved and accepted than I ever dared imagine. And so in this moment, I truly place my hope and my faith in you. And I commit to you to following it uh, into the waters of baptism um, and be brought into uh, a church family. Thank you, Lord, for hearing my prayer. Amen.